Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is Paul Friedrich, Professor Emeritus of Anthropology, Linguistics, and Slavic Language and Literatures at the University of Chicago, speaking on the occasion of being awarded the Wilbur Cross Medal by the Yale Graduate School. Mr. Friedrich is currently focused on his work with the Committee for Social Thought at the University of Chicago. This is Gila Reinstein from the Office of Public Affairs at Yale University in the recording studio with Paul Friedrich, alumnus of the Graduate School of Yale University. Professor Friedrich is Professor Emeritus of Anthropology, Linguistics, and Slavic Languages and Literatures at the University of Chicago. He's returned to Yale on the occasion of being awarded a Wilbur Cross Medal, which is the highest honor the Graduate School gives to its alumni. Thanks a lot for the invitation and for the chance to speak. Let me start by a minor addition to what uh, my colleague here just said, and that is that I'm also in the, the Committee on Social Thought. thought. That's where, where I'm most active uh, at, at the University of Chicago. Uh, otherwise, uh, I was asked to, to divide my time between reminiscences and the kind of work I've been doing in the last half century. Actually, it's more than, than half a century. But with one reminiscence is that when I got here, I was put in the Quinnipiac Club, which is so posh. My room is so posh that it was almost embarrassing. Uh, however, I did sleep nine and a half hours, so it must have been a good room. But the other side of it was that as I as the taxi drew up, I noticed the Citizens Bank. And that brought back a very vivid memory of being here uh, 56 years ago, I think, and being very poor, a graduate student, and going there and persuading them to lend me $400, <laughs> which they did. And, but times were hard in those days. It was hard to get, I didn't get very good funding, and uh, I had to work half-time most of the time. It was, very, it was quite difficult. I, I worked half-time translating uh, Russian documents, and then I, I TA'd for a lot of people. And when, when I came back after I did my field work, I ha- went down to Stanford and taught half-time, which was quite demanding because I was also finishing my thesis and also um, taking the last half-year of courses. So it was a period of, of great uh, strain and also great um, uh, you know, accomplishing, accomplishing something. Uh, otherwise, when I came here, I, 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 I had a background at Harvard in a, in a humanistic spectrum, basically, of philosophy and, and poetry and literature, history, that kind of thing. And I didn't really know much about anthropology, uh, t- to be quite frank. I had had, some, I had, had sort of indirect anthropo- anthropology by a peculiar route. Because I was not only majoring in Russian, but I was living with a Russian family, the important anthropologist, uh, Clyde Kluckon, uh, got wind of what I was doing, and that, that he liked that idea of going living with the Russian family. So he recruited me to interview uh, Russian refugees in Germany for eight months. Mu- so for eight months, I did that. Uh, sometimes uh, supervised by him, wrote dozens of interviews and visited many uh, displaced person camps. This was really uh, a rough thing. These people had been through war, the Gulag, famine, drought all those kinds of terrible experiences. And they were living there in Germany uh, under rather difficult circumstances. So in a way, I, I sort of got into anthropology by practicing it before I ever got to studying it, which is not the usual route, although I know it's been done before. 
In any case, when I came here, I, I was told to, I was advised to come here because to Yale because it was that time the best uh, department in in the country, possibly in the world. Uh, I was lucky in several ways. Uh, my my teachers were renowned scholars, uh, but they were also given to something which was quite new to me. Remember, I said I'd been in. Uh, the humanities, sort of abstract things like philosophy and poetry. And here I was confronted with a certain kind of really refreshing empiricism. Uh, the, the archaeologist at one point held up a rock or looked like a chipped stone of some sort and said, this is a celt. I thought, that's interesting. Uh, at another point in the linguistics class, the professor walked around the table uh, reciting a uh, Oneida tale by heart. So we were exposed to that kind of reality. Uh, so I took, I, I, I entered the spirit of this and I went out to, to the outskirts of New Haven with the archaeologist and chipped away at a bank of clam shells. <laughs> Presumably there were Indian artifacts in there somewhere. And then I found a Twee speaker spoken in West Africa because that was a, a tone language. So several of us could study this tone language. Again, exposure to the to some kind of uh, empirical reality that hadn't been my cup of affair, so to speak, up until then. Uh, however, I was very grateful. I went I went from that uh, empirical experience. Well, I shouldn't say just empirical because these people uh, presented uh, all the theory of the day in, in great in great richness. Especially, the man I TA'd for, Ralph Linton, had been one of the architects of the personality approach, and he, together with Edward Sapir and Hallowell, had basically forged the the elements of a of the personality approach in anthropology. So it was, it was very edifying to be his teaching assistant. Although, as I told you, I hadn't had any anthropology, so I, I was teaching Linton without ever having studied what he was teaching, which, which presented problems, uh, mainly of brushing up on the subject or learning it in the hours before the class. Uh, from there, I went to, um, I've had a rather diverse career uh, in anthropology. I, I went down to Mexico. Uh, I, 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 it was hard to get funding in those days. So at one point, I was going to go and study the high construction workers in uh, the Mohawk, high construction workers in Brooklyn. And uh, that would have been a mistake because I, I had a, my eardrum was damaged in a boxing match and my balance isn't all that good. You know? And then I was going to go to study the Turkmens in northern Afghanistan, which again is not advisable if you don't know the languages very well. It's quite a dangerous area as we've been uh, hearing recently in recent years. And then I was going to study the miners in, in Mexico. And uh, uh, Clyde Cochran in his lecture had said, uh, uh, if you're an anthropologist, you you go down deep, you stay down, down long, and you come up dirty, which is pretty good advice. But I don't think any anthropologist up to now has gone down deep and stayed down long and come up dirty from the depths of a Mexican mine outside Monterey. So again, it's lucky that that didn't work out. Although it was interesting uh, trying to get that position. So I fetched up in a in a Mexican Indian village in southwestern Mexico, which had had the highest homicide rate in the state. But it was very interesting. Uh, my father was a political scientist, and here was Machiavelli, grassroots Machiavelli. You know, it was again empirical, to put it mildly. So I, I lived there for a, 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 <coughs> quite a bit of time and 
and interviewed these uh, leaders and fighters and so forth, and basically studied agrarian reform. They had been, uh, this area had been the scene of a very dramatic uh, seizure of land from Spanish landowners, and I got very excited about that. So I wrote up my thesis about that. Uh, his, his book is called uh, uh, Agrarian Revolt in a Mexican Village. And then there's another book that came out of it called uh, The Princes of Naranja, which means the plural of prince, one, some people have read this as the princess, <laughs> and since I've also also read about Aphrodite, it's an understandable mistake. <laughs> but still, it wasn't. It was the the princess, the Machiavellian princess. In fact, the name comes from Machiavelli. Uh, since then, my career has been rather uh, diversified, and it's hard to talk about it in brief compass. But it's basically uh, involved uh, Greek culture and language and. Russian culture and language. Remember that I was a major in Russian, and so since then I've I've studied uh, the Russian authors and published on Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Pushkin and other people like that. And then the Greek thing was very exciting because I I got into it uh, rather late. I learned Greek at forty, although you're not supposed to be able to learn languages after I think thirty six or something like that. The cycle linguists say, but I I learned it anyway. Uh, and was taught by James Redfield, the son of uh, Robert Redfield. And uh, since then, I've taught uh, either the Iliad or the Odyssey or both or the Homeric Greek language uh, some 34 times. So that's been very much a part of my uh, part of my life, part of this half century that I'm supposed to be talking to you about today. And but I want to emphasize that while I've wandered uh, around, I've kept the anthropological background. In mind, in particular, the writings uh, that inspired me most uh, when I got going uh, at Harvard and that when I continued to study at Yale were by Edward Sapir and his model of language, culture, and personality. I found this very challenging, these three things. Uh, and uh, not all that many people pursue that uh, today. But for example, take, take the Greek uh, case, there I, I worked on the language, of course. I told you I, I taught it. I've also published, I published a book on uh, one aspect of the verbal system where I challenged the prevailing dogma regarding marketness in that, in that scheme. And then I got involved in Greek archaeology and mythology and uh, very involved. And I wrote a book uh, which came out uh, on Aphrodite, the goddess of love, longing, lust, and uh, jealousy. Who would not be interested in those things? But I, I, I spelled this out archaeologically, anthropologically, mythologically, and so forth. So that was the culture part of the trilogy that I learned from Sapir. Uh, and then as far as personality goes, I was very interested in the character of Achilles and wrote a, an article together with James Redfield on the, the language of Achilles, as Achilles, uh, Achilles language as a personality symbol. Uh, which took off on from an article by Sapir. Uh, that was uh, so. There's, there's the the trilogy sort of uh, acted out or worked out with respect to, to Greek culture, and uh, I, d I did similar th similar things could be said about the Russian part, and then an, a third thing that I should mention because it's been occupied a lot of my time um, in recent years is uh, China, not China in general. I mean, who can know China in general. It's so, so vast, and if it, the culture goes back so far. But what I've been 
what I've been focusing on is uh, the, the Tang period, uh, and especially the major poets of the Tang period, such as Du Fu and Wang Wei and Li Bo. Uh, that's been very exciting, and I've lectured about that. I always include that in my courses. My courses have ranged over lots of subjects, and I don't really want to repeat them here. It's, it's almost embarrassing. It's like the uh, Quinnipiac <laughs> hotel room. Uh, <laughs> I don't really want to talk about it in full, uh, but uh, it's been exciting to get into those uh, into those Chinese poets, and uh, it's been part of a course I've developed in the last really quite a while now, 15 years, on world poetry, which comes out of a course that I taught on on mythology, world mythology, but it's it's different from that. Uh, it has a mythological component and a religion component. But it's also somehow uh, inspired by the contemporary developments in world music. I like that idea a lot, and the different kinds of music, African and Asiatic and so forth. Um, and uh, so this course has been quite successful. I've been teaching at, at Chicago now for a number of years. And in that, what I was, as I was saying before, in that course, uh, the Chinese poets, the great Chinese poets of the Tang period, uh, figure uh, saliently. One thing that I like about them, and one thing that they that makes them worth including in such a course, is their uh, their religions, because they, here you have Taoism, especially Taoist magic, and uh, Confucianism, of course, and several kinds of Buddhism. And so, in a way, I, I tell my students, you think you're taking world poetry, but actually you're taking comparative literature by someone that has never studied comparative literature. He just sort of walked into it and found it, and found it very exciting, and so began to teach it. So that you're sort of getting uh, two things at the same time, and that's made the, the, the Chinese uh, poets and the, the religion of the Chinese poets uh, a, a continuing a continuing excitement for me. You have a book that's currently in uh, in uh, in the process of being uh, published, The Gita Within Walden. Could you tell us something about that, please? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Uh, that book is uh, coming out with the SUNY uh, Press of uh, New York. And that, again, invo again involves uh, some peculiar biographical facts. Uh, I w lived in Concord, Massachusetts, went to high school there, and walked around Lake Walden innumerable times with my father and with friends, and became very conversant, not just with Walden, but with the other works of Thoreau in my adolescence. And in a way, uh, many, many basic steps I've made in my life have been modeled on, on Thore what Thoreau said in that book. Uh, I think it's a great book. It's one of the great American books, and it's also a book that's terribly important to many people in many other cultures, such as India. In any case, there was this Walden-Thoreau component in my life, and uh, that I, I won't bother to illustrate all the ways that that I tried to, uh, that I was, my life was modeled by that. Um, but uh, then later on, when I was at Chicago and teaching in the Committee on Social Thought, students kept urging me to, to teach Walden. Uh, they also urged me to teach Moby Dick, which has a personal component. But I, I surrendered to that, and about seven or eight years ago, I began offering a course uh, called uh, on, on Thoreau and his Walden. That went quite well. I gave a lot of papers on that, and I have a lot of papers in press on that. But as I, <clears throat> as I got into Walden, uh, 
I realized more and more how important Indian thought had been to him. And so uh, that uh, hooked me back to an earlier part of my life, which I haven't mentioned up to now, and that is that I went to India for a year and studied the Malayalam language in southwestern India. While I was doing that, I became interested in Indian thought, and uh, especially the Bhagavad Gita. Now, that was terribly important to Thoreau. In fact, he took the Bhagavad Gita out with him out to Lake Walden and read it during those two years that he was living there. He wasn't living there alone. He used to go in once a week to eat pies at his mother's house, but still he was back and forth. He was at Lake Walden a lot of the time, and he was reading uh, the Gita in particular, but also other works of Indian culture, so he became quite renowned as, a, as an expert in Indian culture. So I began looking at the uh, Gita more carefully. Now, one thing I haven't mentioned is that I studied Sanskrit back at Harvard uh, for one very intense, uh, no, uh, three quarters of a very intensive year. So I went back and renewed that, that Sanskrit, read the Gita again and again, and began giving a course called uh, the, the Bhagavad Gita and Thoreau's Walden, which I taught not only at the University of Chicago, but downtown at the Adult Center, which is, um, uh, you know, doctors, lawyers, merchants, maybe a thief once in a while, uh, people of diverse backgrounds, but head nurses are particularly, st- stand out in my mind as particularly talented students. So I've been teaching there for quite a while. And frankly, like many of the professors at the University of Chicago, I'd rather teach those motivated uh, professionals down there in the, in the middle of the loop than the uh, students at the University of Chicago, not to say that they aren't wonderful too. But I was teaching these two, these two subjects tandem, so to speak, that is the connections between them and the ways in which uh, Thoreau drew on the Gita. Uh, he said one, at one point that to read the Gita is like seeing the first light of dawn, which I like that, which I like since I'm an early riser. The first lights of dawn are very important to me, and that made sense. So that that kept going, and I kept writing on it, and worked out this. Uh, it was very difficult, but I did work out this book. Uh, which is now being in, in press, as I said. That's an important. In a way, it's, it, that sort of brackets my life because the the uh, Thoreau and, and Walden, that whole scene, Concord, Massachusetts, is where a lot of my thinking began in my teens. And then at a, an age that I hesitate to specify, <laughs> uh, my colleague here hasn't mentioned that. <laughs> uh, but let's say more than half a century later, I come circling back to... Uh, Walden and Thoreau, and it's been a good, it's been a good thing to circle back to. Well, thank you very much. The Wilbur Cross Medal is the highest honor the graduate school bestows on its alumni. For more on the Wilbur Cross Medal, please visit aya.yale.edu. This was recorded on October 9, 2007.